Hello, I'm Stephen Woodford. I'm Chief Executive Officer of the UK's Advertising Association. Now, throughout my career, I've had the chance to see the power our industry holds in driving positive social change. And it is this power that drove us at the Advertising Association, along with the IPA and ISBA, to launch in 2020 AdNet Zero. It's an industry-wide initiative for advertising to reach net zero in the UK in advertising operations by the end of 2030. I'm delighted to be your host together with Seb Munden of this podcast series, where we'll be talking about the sustainability challenges and opportunities within the advertising industry's path to net zero. In these conversations with industry leaders, we'll discuss the five actions of the AdNet Zero Action Plan, ranging from curbing emissions from production to using the advertising's power to support consumer behavior change and how businesses in our industry might achieve these. Now, the climate crisis is obviously a global problem and one that concerns us all and in which we all play a role in solving. We're very happy to welcome you into the AdNet Zero world and we hope that we can give you some ideas on how to join us on this journey and what your role is in it. Hello and welcome to the first episode of AdNet Zero, making every ad a green ad. In this podcast series, we'll be joined by industry leaders to talk about the challenges and opportunities of our industry's path to net zero. In this first episode, we'll talk about AdNet Zero, what progress has been made since its launch in the UK, the next steps and what to expect, and particularly with a focus uh, on the US market and uh, our plans and ambitions uh, to bring AdNet Zero to the US. And so who better uh, to talk to than Alison Pepper from the Four A's? Uh, and Alison, please say hello and introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks, Stephen. And happy to be the guinea pig on your first podcast. That's exciting. <laughs> so as Stephen said, my name is Alison Pepper, and I'm the Executive Vice President of Government Relations and Sustainability at the Four A's based here in Washington, D.C. And prior to being at the Four A's, Alison, you've got good industry experience. I do, I do. I'm, I'm making my way through every segment of the advertising ecosystem. So prior to the four A's, I uh, worked in policy and was the assistant general counsel at the Interactive Advertising Bureau, the IAB, also in their Washington, D.C. office. So you know the agency world very well now, and you obviously know the digital world extremely well from your time at the IAB. And I think this intersection between policy and sustainability is just an incredibly important one for our industry because we are right in, in in many ways, we're in the sort of crosshairs of the change that needs to happen in our industry because our industry works with pretty much every other industry. And often it's the advertising that is the most visible part of, of how a business reaches its consumers. So first of all, I think this is a, a, this is a really big question, but how do you think advertising in the broadest sense, can play a positive role in, in tackling the climate crisis that we face? Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of different avenues for the advertising industry to tackle these issues. I would probably start with just, and you know, obviously my, my personal opinion on this one, I think one of the biggest roles, both near-term and long-term, that the industry has to play here is their expertise in influencing consumer behavioral change. Right. And that's something that's both short term and long term. And when I say influencing consumer behavioral change, I would say an example. And this this might sound like a silly example on space, but I actually think it's it's powerful. So, for instance, um, let's say, you know, car ads. Right. 
maybe sometimes instead of always showing a single driver in a car, maybe show two or three people in a car, or maybe show a car pulling, or maybe when you cut to your stock imagery, or maybe not stock imagery, depends on how you use it, instead of showing business travel always in the context of, say, airplane travel, what if you showed business travel in the context of train travel? Exactly. You know, these these seems like kind of small, discrete examples, but they're examples of what I think of how the advertising industry could start to think about these traditional images and imagery they showed around a lot of, you know, very common consumer behaviors. Here's how you shift the narrative a little bit by not you don't draw it out. Do you know what I mean? You don't make it a point of the ad or you don't make it a point of it. You normalize it by showing it in context. And I think that's going to be a huge role that the industry has to play is in normalizing and influencing consumer behavioral change. Many other things as well, many other things as well, I think the industry can do. But I do think that's going to be a big one. I think it's so true. And I think it's a great uh, point to start thinking about the car industry, because if you think about both emissions that come from transport, it's one of the biggest sources of emissions in our economy. Obviously, personal transport is a is a big part of that, and car usage is a big part of that personal transport footprint. And I'm sure it's the same in the US and, and other Europe, major European markets. But we 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 monitor in the UK ad spend uh, in some of these, if you like, high carbon sectors. And when we look at the car industry in 2022, the share of spend for hybrids and zero emission vehicles is going to be 70 percent. And currently, sales are about fifteen percent. So you can see that the advertisers and the and the, the the car manufacturers are investing way ahead of sales, because in the UK, for instance, there are no petrol and diesel cars allowed to be sold after twenty thirty. So having that hard stop on these sales means that the manufacturers are switching very very fast towards promoting either low emission or zero emission vehicles. And the consumers, you know, are, are 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 switching also. I think in the UK, electric vehicles outsold diesel vehicles uh, in the last few months. You know, so we're and I'm sure we're seeing the same in the US. I was very struck by the Super Bowl ads for GM and Ford, featuring incredible lineups of electric vehicles. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, it's it's good timing for this conversation because I would say up until honestly up until the past two weeks i feel like here in the u.s we've very much been lagging we've very much been lagging both on sort of the regulatory point of view but also the investment support point of view that needs to happen to facilitate i think i think ev market penetration in the u.s it's it's pretty low it's still pretty low i know i would say it's under six percent at a national level now california skews that number because california is the highest i think i think california is the highest ev penetration rate in the country. So California even skews that number. But two significant changes that we've had just recently in the past couple of weeks that really should transition that is one, California has announced that I think 2035 is their target date, that by 2035, they are not going to allow the sale of new internal combustion engine cars in California. And since California is almost 40 million people, car manufacturers follow California's lead because you're not going to manufacture a product that can't be sold in California. So that's happening on the California front, but also with the passage of really our first significant climate bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, there is $369 billion set aside in that bill for all types of energy and climate related provisions. And a big part of that $369 billion is going to be dedicated 
to building out EV charging stations, to providing a lot of tax incentives for manufacturers to do, it has to be domestic production to be clear, but to do a lot of domestic production. So we've had two significant developments just in the past couple of weeks that really should hasten our EV transition. And it's you know, it's it's terrific to see that. I read about the uh, the, the the bill particularly, and just so, it's so good to see that passed, and good to see. I mean, we you know we've talked a lot about this uh, over over the last year, um, and I think in relation to our industry, uh, when we think about advertising, you know, both sides of the Atlantic, in effect, you know, our business reflects obviously and supports the uh, the strategies and the product lineups and the. Um, and the innovations that that the advertisers are developing, and when we see an acceleration of of uh, progress, like as you were just referring, you were just referring to, that will wash through very very quickly into the ad business, because of course the conception of that will uh, the, the advertising will change. I would also say that's actually a particularly good example, though, to go back to where the challenges are and and opportunities for our industry on advertising. The EV market is a good place to start. So. You've seen, I, I'm not entirely sure you'd be curious to hear what you've seen in the UK, EU. I will tell you domestically here in the US, there's been some backlash, both from some regulatory pressures as well as some consumer activist groups pressures on some of the EV marketing that it's fundamentally greenwashing because the companies who are doing the ads, it's less than 5% of sales, right? And then it doesn't represent a true picture of what you're actually seeing. But I think that's an opportunity because one of the things that advertising does is not only to educate, but it's also to drive demand. Well, I understand that it's less than 5% of sales right now, but I've also got to, you know, as a car manufacturer, as an advertising agency, as everyone in that ecosystem, I've got to be afforded these opportunities to help get out the word about what we've got in the pipeline, what we want to drive demand for. And that that isn't that isn't greenwashing, right? There's kind of that fear right now that that isn't greenwashing. That I need to be able to put out that market and try to start generating that demand, even though right now I understand this less than five percent of my sales. I'm trying to get to a higher number, right? And there's been pushback about that lately. And I, and I think that's a good. I mean, I think the car market is a really good example of advertising as a leading indicator in a sense. You know, it's it's worked. I, I, you know, I, I'm not an expert on it, but it seems to have worked so well in the UK that it's actually very hard to f- get one at the moment. There, there's there's massive supply shortages, so it feels like demand is actually ahead of supply. And of course, the enormous spike in energy costs that seems to be here, you know, it might well be here for the next few years, uh, given the global situation, is, is only going to accelerate that. So that can only be a good thing because. Um, in fact, I was talking to somebody in uh, who knows the energy market well and was, was talking about we may have reached a point of peak sort of petrol and diesel sales because of just this increasing penetration of, of EVs. And also even the, you know, the, the, the petrol and diesel cars that are still on sale are way, way more efficient than a, I think an average petrol car is about 30% more efficient than one that's 10 years old. So even, in, you know, even a new, you know, if you're going to buy a new car, at least it's good even and if it's, if it's still combustion driven it's still going to be more efficient than a, a five-year-old or ten-year-old car and uh, less other emissions as well so it's a really good it's a really good example of progress and if we think about that from a, a market point of view and then think about our industry and think about the the ad industry itself the agencies the commercial media companies the production companies the whole sort of ecosystem that supports the advertisers what do you think when you look at your membership particularly at the four a's um 
you've been running, I know, uh, a sustainability working group for the last year. Could you just give us a sort of some insights from that group and the sort of appetite that you're feeling from your members for for making advertising itself the operations more sustainable? That's definitely there's definitely a huge appetite for it. So we started talking about consumer behavioral change, but one of the things that I think I think your organization and the Adnet Zero program does is I think it's the very first action item on the five point action item plan is the idea of getting your own house in order first, right? So before you start preaching to other entities, you look at what your own operations entail and what your own carbon footprint is and what you could be doing better sometimes before you move into other avenues. So I would say one of the biggest focuses, particularly, particularly it's not just the holding companies. You know, we, we hear more about this, I think, between the holding companies. But I will tell you, I, I talk to a lot of independent agencies as well, who, while they might not be doing some of the high level things that the holding companies are doing, like they're not, for instance, SBTI aligned or, you know, they're not necessarily doing some of the some of those higher things and, and more expensive things, quite frankly, that the holding companies are better resourced to do. You're seeing a lot of the independents who are doing similar things via participation and becoming B Corp certified, right? So they're looking at their own carbon footprints, they're they're doing other environmental initiatives kind of on the B Corp front and through some other NGO uh, avenues. I think there's, you know, there's there's a lot of progress. Um it's I don't I can't fully speak to what the comparisons are, for instance, between the US side and the UK or the EU. My sense is from what I've seen that with with trying to do things like, you know, starting with these baseline things of establishing your carbon footprint, looking at where you can reduce, if you can't reduce, where you I think you have to maybe muddle your way through a little bit more here because today there's we have not been right the u.s government and even the states really for the most part here depending on what state you operate they have not given much guidance on these things right like they just haven't there's not there's not much guidance we're just we are just now seeing like maybe some formal guidance come from states and um, federal regulatory agencies but but not much formal guidance into how to do any of this so I think one of the things that a, a lot of agencies have struggled with, and it's not specific to them, I, I quite frankly think it's any business operating in the U.S., is trying to determine what is a valid, verifiable, authentic framework to be using, what's the right way to do these emissions inventories, what's, you know, what's the right trade-off, you know what I'm saying? I think there's a lot of confusion as to the right way of going about getting to establishing your carbon footprint or getting to reduction goals. Or you and I talked about this recently with the John Oliver segment on carbon offsets recently, understanding what a valid offset is, right? I think there's still an enormous lack of clarity on making sure that you're doing something the right way and something that is going to be acceptable and something that is going to, most importantly of all, produce actual results. Absolutely. And it's so interesting hearing the, you know, that, that US experience, because it's exactly the same experience we went through probably uh, in 2019 and 2020 in the UK, when we were bringing together, I mean, before we launched AdNet Zero in November 2020, we had a working group, which was about a dozen companies from our from across the industry, mixture of advertisers, agencies, commercial media owners. And we worked it through, you know, and, and, the, and the action plan is is not our action plan in the sense of that's something that we went away and wrote on our own. It's something that that emerged from working groups and just thrashing it through. And we and we 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 came on a you know not surprisingly uh, quite a straightforward model of just looking at the end to end of the advertising journey. And and one of the things that we heard from 
various experts that we spoke to said, wherever you are on the journey, starting is a very good thing because you will have to learn and it's a steep curve and you'll muddle your way through and so on. Um, but first of all, get your own house in order. And that was such, a, you know, so action one is about get your own house in order because even the just the experience of going through that, you learn so much. You start to look at where, you know, it's it's basically energy and transportation that 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 you know is the the bulk of the generation uh, uh, in in terms of the you know your own house, you know, the scope one uh, and scope two for the for your business. But it, you know, we found, and I think it's I think it might well be true, pretty much the same in the US. We found that for every person working in advertising, the footprint was around about three point four tons of carbon per year. You know, from the travel from the energy uh, and so on. Now, it'll probably vary by state in the US depending on the energy grid and, and so on. But the interesting thing we found also is that the travel is overwhelmingly by a small group of people by air. Now, I think in the US it might well be higher because obviously distances and the much more decentralized nature of the US economy means that, that there's a lot more flying. Yeah, the pandemic will have shifted that and obviously zoom and the rest of it will have transformed a lot of those you know having to fly for a meeting um so it'd be interesting to see how the behaviors change but when we started the journey and we had uh we introduced um we had about 50 member companies that had committed to the to this journey and we surveyed them to see how many are measuring and how many are just starting on this journey and i think around about half of the companies were just starting on the journey and they're using a whole mix of consultancies. We found about five or six different consultancies were being used, all broadly aligning around similar standards and so on. And we spent the last year looking to collate that data. We did a first run at it in, in, in 2021. We'll have a much better run at it in 2022 with about, I think, I'm hoping for about 60 or 70 companies' data. And we'll be publishing that at our AdNet Zero Summit in, in November. So it's hard, you know. There's not 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 to not to underestimate this. It's hard, uh, but the uh, but the going going through to it together, like you're doing in your group, is so much easier when you, you know, when you share the share the pain points and share the learning and share the frameworks, which is what AdNet Zero is all about. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think probably for me, one of the things that's been the most eye-opening going through this process with with a lot of agencies is if it's this difficult with services companies, how difficult is it with goods companies that have manufacturing supply chains, right? And I think what's going to have to happen is there's going to have to be, so for instance, you know, because there just isn't a lot of official, when I say official, I mean legal, regulatory, et cetera, because there isn't a lot of official guidance on a lot of this. I think just start from ground zero. Let's say you're a small agency. You want to get started in this whole process, right? Just ground zero. You've done nothing. You want to get started. You and, you and you don't have someone, you know, you're not getting someone who's an expert in these issues. You're just you're tasking your 27 junior account, you know, your junior account person at your agency who's just personally interested in these areas. Right. Because these are the resources that you have to work with. That person does research and, you know, that may, may come up with, well, do I. OK, first thing we need to do, we need to establish our carbon footprint. Can I hire a vendor? Are there freely publicly available resources? Is it any good if it's not audited? Is this the right calculator? What is everybody else doing? You know what I'm saying? It just all these various questions for how you get started, I think can be daunting. Yeah, they can be. And I think this is the, 
this is the role for programs like AdNet Zero is to be the point of coming together, sharing learning, creating frameworks. Um, if we move on and we think about the other big part of the program that we've been discussing over the last last year in relation to the US is AdGreen, mm. uh, the, the, the carbon calculator that allows you to measure and then manage and reduce the footprint from production. We know that the US production community is very keen to do this. And there obviously there are lots of calculators and lots of consultancies out there. There are various groups looking at this. So we know the appetite is there and, and AdGreen is a solution, but you know, when this is not about mandating any one solution, what it is about saying is just doesn't matter what you use, but measure and manage and then reduce the carbon. And I think ultimately, you know, we want to be in a point where you know, you're offsetting only what you can't eliminate. Um, so just perhaps reflect on on that. Let's, let's think think about the steps because this is we've talked about one and measuring your own footprint as a business. Number two is the production. Uh, again, in your group, I know that this has been a subject area for discussion and uh, certainly at the forays, a lot of interest in this as an area. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of interest in for the agri tool, making sure that you can measure your production making sure that you can talk about, to your point, you, you do want to get to reduction first before you get to offsetting, right? You want to get to reduction as much as you can. So I do think because production is such a big source of emissions, um, I think it's Mark, Mark Reed at WVP was talking a while back about the idea that, well, you know, the pandemic, obviously find your silver linings in it. There are a few silver linings in the pandemic, but one of them was realizing the, you know, the virtues and the abilities that virtual technology offer, not just in terms of reducing carbon footprints, but also cost, right? Like for instance, for production shoots, if you do a production shoot and you're flying 25 people to a location, I, there's kind of an opportunity to step back and say, did you need to fly? A, did you need to fly 25 people to a location to do a production shoot? Could you have done it with less? And B, I he, Mark Reed gave a statistic I heard him say uh, during this conversation once about what percentage of footage or, you know, was actually used from reduction. And it was extraordinarily low. Well, it was, it was, yes. And, and in fact, it was at your sustainability conference earlier this year. It was Mark and I. Oh, okay. Thank you for reminding me. I knew I'd heard it. I just couldn't well, remember where. It was, it was your own gig. <laughs> I knew I'd heard him say it. I could not remember where. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I remember the number because it was like a jaw-dropping moment when he said, yeah. uh, "We use three percent of the footage we shoot." Yeah, 3%. and you just think, if you get that up to ten percent, that's a big saving. If you get up to fifteen percent, that's an enormous saving compared to you know, five times uh, better performance. Uh, so I think I think those things are so important, and I think it's it's I mean cost and all the other things, and obviously pandemic have been a driver. But now when we have, uh, if you like the the thing that dwarfs everything else, whatever the short-term e economic issues are, and obviously the global situation is pretty grim at the moment. Uh, the thing that is coming that uh, I think it was a New Yorker cartoon, I can't remember which talked about, looked at all these various levels of tsunami. And it's the one that dwarfs all others is the climate crisis. And, uh, you know, so the quicker we start doing these things, uh, the better. And we've, we've seen extraordinary engagement in the admin calculator, because the production community really want to, you know, want to want to get in. They they want to make a difference. Yeah, and the, per Mark's example, I think, what struck me about what Mark was talking about um, was the idea that there is a lot of low hanging fruit here. 
You know what I mean? There's there's some low-hanging fruit here that you could go after pretty quickly to cut the emissions profile of a lot of production. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be talking about some of the other actions uh, later. In fact, there's a there's a, a podcast about uh, action two in terms of ad green, so not to steal uh, their thunder. But uh, just moving on and just thinking again and picking up, we, we talked a bit about the car industry, but thinking again about US experience so far and other sustainable products and services and the shifts that you're seeing, just, just perhaps ref reflect on what you're seeing um you know in, in the u.s market generally beyond beyond autos yeah i think another one and this is this is broad-based across you know the cpg so consumer packaged goods i think this was broad-based there is a lot of pressure on companies that are in the cpg space right now about single-use plastic right this whole throwaway culture the problem with a lot of plastic is What's finally coming out with recycling statistics? I, again, don't know how it, don't know, know know how it is in the UK or EU, but there's a lot of good valid data coming out now around plastic recycling that says it's it's essentially non-existent. Like the amount of plastic that we put in our, you know, today was recycling day in my house. So we put out the bin with all these different things. The data that's coming out is that the amount that um, paper has a very high recycling rate, things like aluminum, the steel, other things like that. Plastic is less than 10%. It has an absolutely abysmally low rate of recycling. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is because of the way a lot of polymers are mixed and plastics production make them very difficult to segregate from the recycling process. But there's the problem is that there's no clear path to making a lot of plastics used in CPG highly recyclable. You're just, it, it might happen, you know, I. I put my faith in a lot of science and technology as much as the next person, but there is no clear, clear path right now. And because there is truly no clear path on that about how to make a lot of plastic more recyclable, there's a lot of pressure on the CPG industry right now to look at alternatives to the traditional plastics they've made and to try to get away from single-use plastic. And I think you're seeing that across the entire CPG industry. Yeah. Which is a you know a really important to see those changes, and I think actually it's it's those visible changes in the communication and the packaging and in the in those day to day products that we all use and buy that start to really bring it home is that you know the choices that you make matter you know from everything you know and I think this is this is this is increasingly uh, you know I, I was struck by I saw an article yesterday in 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 our trade magazine um, campaign talking about a new Burger King campaign. And it was basically to, it was basically to give people a free Whopper, a plant-based Whopper, because they found out that 60% or 70% of their customers who would eat a regular Whopper uh, just on principle wouldn't try a plant-based one. So they're basically giving to them free because apparently they taste incredibly good. I, I, I'm not, not tried one. Uh, I'm a big Whopper fan, so I will definitely try one. Um, but I thought, you know, that's a really interesting example of, you know, if you like the most archetypal high carbon food which is a, a burger uh because of the intensity around around meat production is switching at speed and, and, the, and the thing that really st struck me from the release that came with this story was that burger king have set themselves an objective by i think it was to say i think by 2030 50 percent of their sales of their burgers will be plant-based i don't know whether it's the same in the u.s um but that's an extraordinary, that's an extraordinary change when you think about a, a business that's probably 50, 60, 70 years old in terms of um, 
you know, the, 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 rather like the, the revolution in cars, that's a revolution in, in fast food. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, I, I just finished reading, um, there's a, I don't know if you read, there's a gentleman, his name's John Doerr. He's a venture capitalist guy at a famous, kind of a famous venture capitalist firm in Silicon Valley called Kleiner Perkins, right? And John Doerr is, you know, famous for his track record. He was an early investor in Google, et cetera. So uh, I'm sorry, John Doerr is his name. John Doerr is famous for his, his pretty good track record, right? Of wins, of investing in companies that became very big in the Valley. He actually just gave a billion dollars to Stanford to Stanford just started their first integrated sustainability school. So he is very, very vested in this interest. But anyway, he just uh, released a book called Speed and Scale about some discrete plans around climate action that he would like to see happen. But one of the things he talks about in that book is the role that agriculture has to play, right? And one of the things he says is, I can't remember if he was an investor in Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods. It's one of the two. Like, I can't remember which one it was, but it's one of the two plant-based burger programs. And he talks about how that's been one of the best, most profitable investments he's made thus far in this entire space because it's taken off so much in the U.S. market. So his, his point was, you know, listen, I'm still a VC guy at the end of the day. I want to do good with my money, but you can do good and do well. Yeah. And I think that's and, and I think it's one of the most exciting trends you see when you look at the US in particular is how much venture capital money is going into sustainable services, innovation products. That's a Stanford story I hadn't heard, but that's that's incredibly good news because right in the in the epicenter of the cauldron of innovation for the world, in a sense, yeah. uh, you know, to have that sort of emphasis on sustainability means, and I, I you know, although we face an enormous challenge, the thing that makes me uh, I'm not, I'm not sure whether you could say optimistic, but less pessimistic, say, is um, that business is really grasping the challenge. And it's ultimately it's innovation and competition that is going to drive the changes that we need to see in the way that we live our lives. Uh, and, you know, obviously, government regulation has a, a, an incredibly important role. And I think let's 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 touch on that for a moment, because I think you know, you, you've mentioned that, that, you know, the big bill that's passed this week, which obviously is a huge landmark in the US. Um, how, how do you see that relationship between, and you talked also about California, actually, that relationship between policymakers, regulatory changes, uh, and the industry? Because I, you know, certainly we see them as symbiotic in, 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 in the UK and Europe. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny, I'll just I was talking about John Doric, Leonard Perkins. Um, in that book, he has, I think, Speed and Scale. He has this quote in that book that I think is really helpful to know. And as someone who's worked in politics and policy for 20 plus years, is so, so true. He says in his book that policy is a small P. He's talking about the United States, but I think this can be true anywhere. He says, small C, policy is the small P. Politics is the big P. Unless you get the small P past the big P, you have nothing. Right. On a lot of these initiatives. And he's absolutely right. And the reason is because one of the reasons I think we've been so slow in this country and it's been so difficult to start making the changes we need to make is because the scale is so enormous. No private company can afford it. You know what I mean? It's literally just too much money. It's literally just too much money. And also, so take take energy, right? Renewable energy. One of the challenges challenges with a lot of the grid systems here in the U.S. is we have very decentralized, very state-based, county-based, city-based, um, basically utility commissions, right? And they're not, they're, they're very localized and they don't really, they're not even always, you know, very talk to each other. They're not connected. Um, 
A lot of them have very established ways of doing things. Point being, it's very difficult to introduce a lot of the competition that needs to happen unless you get changes in these utility commissions. And it's very difficult to do so because it's very, very political. So one of the things that's come out, I mean, if, you, if you're interested in this topic, actually Google wrote a great paper on it. Google released back in April uh, a policy framework of the very specific things that they think need to happen to start making our energy grid transitions more to renewables here in the U.S. And they talk very specifically about the need of introducing some more political change at our utility commission. So even, you know, Google, and Google I give Google credit because they did a really great job with this paper. One of the things they talk about is you've got to have the political process move to allow for competition because otherwise competition alone can't do it because of these established sort of somewhat archaic political structures we have. Yeah. And I think that's, it's, I, I think, you know, Google in many ways have set so much of the lead. You know, I think they are, if not the biggest, but certainly one of the biggest buyers of sustainable energy to run all of their uh, servers and and so on. So they, they have been incredibly uh, uh, pioneering in that sense. I think actually tech is leading a lot. If you think about Microsoft looking not only to get to their own zero emissions, but uh, you know, carbon positive and, and 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 take out the emissions that they've all the emissions they've ever produced. That's an extraordinary goal as a as a for a, for a large company. And I think when you see that, and it is very interesting that that where, where competition and where collaboration, um, uh, you know, need to work work together, and that point you're making about the small p of policy and the big p of politics and and you see these interactions the whole time i heard a fantastic phrase from a uh a, a, you know a u.s um sort of academic and consultant and so on a guy called bill westcott and uh, he was doing a panel in can that i was on all around this subject and he talked about pre-competitive collaboration he said on a lot of these issues we have to have pre-competitive collaboration so the energy grids the charging infrastructure, you know, when you go at the macro level in our in our industry, you know, add net zero and and the tools that, and the training and the other things that we're creating are examples of pre-competitive collaboration. But then you want as much competition as possible, based on fixing those things that need to be fixed at an industry level, to in effect accelerate the change. So we want to get there faster than you. We want to do it better than you. We want to make a competitive advantage out of being lower emissions and more sustainable and more more progressive on this front so you know these things and this and this this combination of collaboration and competitive forces is exactly where you know we want to you know that intersection i think that's where trade bodies actually sit for a large part of their time we're about the industry level collaboration in order to allow a really competitive dynamic you know as as efficient and effective and as um uh, um, impactful an industry as possible and I think actually thinking about that and I think about it leads on to another I think an incredibly important precondition for success in this and and, and thinking about skills and and you know you're somebody who's very very immersed in 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 the policy in this and the, and the thinking around this and of course what we have to do is get the skills out to the people making the day-to-day decisions at the sharp end um, so, you know, just give us a view on the on the on the sort of skills debate in the in the US at the moment, and where and where you think the level of skills and understanding is currently in the ad industry. Yeah, no, that's a great question. It actually goes back to what I was. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and it goes back to what I was mentioning earlier. I mentioned to you that the 
John Doerr had just dedicated a billion dollars to Stanford to fund the sustainability school. So I was, and it's to be clear, I, I think Stanford is probably one of the first who seems to be doing this in a very sort of holistic fashion, but it's not that there haven't been other schools and other track, you know, you know, other policy tracks and study tracks, environmental tracks with other schools. I just think Stanford is probably leading the way in making this a very holistic type thing, right? But I was having this conversation with someone um, at an agency recently, and we were talking about, well, you know, agencies, you want to recruit, you know, you want to recruit talent and you want to maybe get people in the door with who want to work on these type of issues. What skill set are you hiring for? Because it's a little bit harder in the agency world, I think, because um, I think a lot of the focus in the U.S. So, for instance, when when the federal government or the administration or um, even a lot of state leaders talk about green skills, I think in their mind, when you hear them describe it, they're talking about a very sort of I would almost say limited subset of skills that would be things like electrical engineering. Do you know what I mean? Mechanical engineering, um, chemical engineering, civil engineering, um, environmental studies, like things like, you know, watershed and out, you know what I mean? These kind of traditional science engineering tracks. What I think needs to happen and something I've been talking to a lot of agencies about for advertising world and um, for agency world and really our entire ecosystem. When I talk to agencies and ad tech companies, advertisers are probably slightly different in the sense that the skill set might be much more dependent on your good or service that you're selling. Do you know what I mean? There, there might be a lot more variability of the advertiser based on your good or service. But for just advertising in general, the skill set that I'm increasingly hearing is data analysis. That's the big one. It's data analysis. Absolutely. And I think it's, um, you know, we, we coming back to that, that point you just made that they're also about the you know, attracting talent into our industry uh, we we did some research as a precursor to Ednet zero to find out where you know climate change and sustainability was in the sort of mindsets of people working in the industry currently this was pre pre the pandemic we did this research and we found out it was the number one concern of people working in the industry is is what i do in my day job part of the problem you know am i part of a uh, you know, a, a system that is fundamentally going to be destroying the planet. Uh, and we've then also found in the same research was that that if they saw their company taking positive action, it moved from being a number one concern to being an incredibly strong source of employee motivation. Now, I'm, not, I'm part of the solution now. You know, we're working to reduce. We're working with our clients to reduce. We're looking at all of the things we can do to to you know to drive the uptake of more sustainable goods and services and so on. So you know these things can they, they flip pretty quickly if you're on the right side of I suppose the right side of the argument. They are, and I'll tell you this is this is this is tough because I've talked to a lot of agency CEOs about this issue um, who who have a you know a skew, uh, who have a workforce skew on the, the younger side, particularly in the creative skill set. And one of the things they talk about is we have these internal processes and sounding boards, essentially, for a lot of our employees who have a sustainability bent, who don't like an existing client, don't like a potential client, you know, for, for whatever it could be. It could be, you know, the, the one we've heard recently, okay, I don't want to work with fossil fuel companies. It could be, I don't want to work with airlines. It could be that I don't want to work at a company that's entire product line is single-use plastics. And 
these these questions are all on top for CEOs, right? Because yeah. on the one hand, CEOs are telling me, well, I want to respect, I want to respect, you know, the desires of my employees to work on a, you know, green products and sustainability and environmental issues. But I also have the balancing concerns of I am running a business here. And in some respects, every act of creation is an act of destruction. So where do I draw the line? And and where have you have you heard, you know, in a way, the way you know, good good solutions that CEOs have come up with to resolve that? Because uh, it would be interesting to share that if you if you you know that that's that's a, a massive challenge I think everywhere for for the business. It really is, and it's it depends. You're not going to be surprised with the answer. It's it's it depends. It's a company by company decision. It's company by company issues. I've had some company leaders who tell me. I'm willing to sign some of these pledges to not work with a certain category of product because I agree with that certain that certain industry that I don't want to work with them. But then I've had other CEOs tell me who say, I'm not signing these pledges, pledges. I'm not making public attestations because I do think every case is a case-by-case fact-specific inquiry. And I'm not going to say that as a blanket statement, I'm not ever working with XYZ industry. I want to see what the ask is, what the campaign is, what the direction is first, and then I'll make a decision. Hmm. I mean, I think that's yes. We're, we're hearing hearing similar. That one of one very prominent leader in the agency world told me that that you know the way that they looked at it was that they looked in you know as much detail as they could at the underlying strategies and commitments that the that the advertise you know that the company was going to be making so if they're working for an energy company or an oil company look at the credibility of what their plans are you know all of them have got you know plans to 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 decarbonize their businesses because they know i can't remember who is it so i think it was a saudi oil, oil minister who said you know the world is going to stop using oil long before it runs out you know that ultimately in the next x decades 20 30 years um, yeah, the sales of oil uh, hydrocarbons are going to be a fraction of what they are uh, today because the world is going to is going to be moving on. So they know they have to transition. So I think it's about looking at those companies and looking at what are they, what are their commitments, and are they credible? Are they aligned with the Paris based goals? Are they aligned, you know, SBTIs and so on? Yeah, the other framework I've had, I, I actually use this one myself because it's simplistic, it's easy to remember, and I think it works, is looking through the framework of the past, present, future, right? What have they done in the past? Is it so egregious? <laughs> is it so egregious that I'm just completely uncomfortable with this? When I look at the present, it, do I see them actually making changes in the present? And what are their future goals? And if I look at the past, present, and future in totality, that's where I make my decision. That's a lovely framework. I, I love that. And I think it might be a good point just to sort of bring this discussion to a conclusion, because I think if you think about the past of our industry, obviously, it's very much about, you know, the growing the consumer economy, the, you know, the ever, ever, ever more growth, ever more sales, ever more, you know, innovation and products and choices and so on, all of which has led to an incredibly successful, you know, standard of living and material well-being. You know, at, uh, uh, across across the world, we can argue about the distribution and all those other things, but generally, it's been a you know great engine of uh, of the progress of humanity. We now the engine of humanity has to become focused on making that growth sustainable, and making sure we can live within our means uh, in, in, in ecologically as well as uh, in all the other ways. 
So, and I think that's sort of the present is where we're wrestling with these challenges. And uh, uh, but the the important thing is, you know, reflecting on that discussion we had about measurement, is we've started the journey. You know, we're on that journey, and the future is going to be about accelerating that change. And that's why um, I've been so excited to to be over the last year that we've been talking about this, the, how the the discussions we've been having with the four A's about bringing AdNet Zero to America have, have gone so well. We've got fantastic collaboration now from a, a, an amazing global group of companies and 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 all the key trade bodies, uh, all the leading trade bodies in the US in terms of the IAB and the ANA as well. Going to be work, we're all going to be working hand in glove to to bring this to, to, to the US. So, Alison, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you for all the contributions you've made to helping us get to this point uh, and to you and your colleagues at the forays. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of AdNet Zero, making every ad a green ad. We hope you found today's session inspiring and helpful. If you want to join us on our path to net zero, make sure to check out adnetzero.com, a website giving you further resources and training, as well as information on how to become a supporter.